We're going to have a good time this morning and hopefully help you get uh, some information that will be helpful. If God's taking you into short-term or long-term missions, these are the issues that you're going to be facing and dealing with. I'm Dr. David Stevens, the CEO of the Christian Medical and Dental Association. You probably know that if you read the bio, but if you just stumbled in here, you wonder, who is this guy? And uh, we're going to dig into a topic called Playing God and Other Ethical Issues in Missionary Medicine. And I want to give you some time for questions, so we'll uh, jump right in. Let's talk about our starting point as we get into this topic. Uh, there's very little published. It's been a number of years ago that I was asked to speak on this. And uh, so I went and did all the research on the Internet and, and uh, looked into what I could find. And the only thing that came up after all my searching was that I was going to speak on it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff written about macro allocation and stuff about whether you should be doing community-based health care or uh, curative care and which one's more important and uh, treatment cost and where we should be putting our money and all sorts of stuff like that. But there's almost nothing uh, at all on this topic of how you do that the, at the uh, level of the hospital and the clinic in developing countries the many ethical issues you're going to be facing with this. And since I'm one of the few, um, only one I know of, there may be others, but the only one that's had any extensive experience in missions that has a degree in ethics, uh, thought we uh, something I should address because these are real issues. They're issues that are going to bother you if you go to the field. Uh, they're going to be issues that um, you deal with every day. Do you start private rooms in your mission hospital to take care of the rich and the wealthy who want those? Who gets the oxygen when you have a limited supply? What about the operating room? Should you build an ICU or not? And the list just goes on and on. You say, well, why would you ask to build whether you should build an ICU or not? Obviously, you need that if you're doing a lot of surgery. Yeah, but what if you don't have enough nurses to even staff the hospital? And then you build an ICU and you're spending your time taking care of the most sick patients to the point where you can't take care of the rest of them. That's not a uh, hypothetical issue. It's something we faced in our hospital. And then this also is a big issue for what's happening in the world. Used to, nobody wrote about students doing rotations overseas or residents doing rotations overseas, and now there's articles all over the place about uh, supervision for them and whether they should be doing this or not. And so we're under scrutiny in medical missions about how we handle things, and it's very important that uh, we show that we are approaching this uh, in the right way, and not only as a biblical witness, but as a testimony to other people. So let's dig into it and uh, see if we can get my button to work. Let's talk about the Mission Hospital. The Mission Hospital is where we're going to kind of focus uh, because a lot of the issues arise there. The, a lot of these principles apply other places. First of all, it's very unique. Uh, mission Hospitals are unlike any other place in the world. They have very highly and committed trained staff, uh, often trained to a higher level than others in the country, depending on where you're located, but especially if you're in a bush area and the location where you are, uh, the people working there are going to have the high, most highly trained staff in all probability. People are very uh, caring and altruistic. They've come for the right reasons. God has called them. They're not there to make funny. They're not money. They're not after fame or fortune. 
they're really trying to help meet the overwhelming needs, and so they're very caring and altruistic. They're working usually in underserved areas, and that's beginning to change because we're beginning to see some mission hospitals being established back into urban centers, which I think is a great trend because that's where the people are going. But many of the established institutions are out in underserved areas where there are very few alternatives. Uh, You're seeing very severe pathology. Things are often very advanced when they come in the door, much more advanced than uh, you'll see in this country usually. And secondly, you're having people that are very, very sick because of that. And uh, care is above uh, very curative capable. They often have technology and knowledge uh, because of more money and outside resources coming in than other hospitals in the area. So they tend to draw uh, the sicker patients for that reason as well. Uh, The care is above average for the country that you're in. And, um, and that can be a struggle at times. You've been in a mission hospital, you'll know that very quickly. Uh, but usually because of that altruistic attitude and the desire to train people that are compassionate as those who have come to help from overseas, uh, you get above average care. There's external funding come in, which impacts a lot of this and, um, and gives you equipment and uh, supplies and medicines that uh, other facilities may not have. So you're in a very resource-rich environment uh, where people are coming in with a lot of diseases. And then there's a paucity of alternatives. I know when I arrived in Africa, we were the only hospital for 300,000 people. And I was the third physician. We had uh, six nurses and a tremendous challenge. The hospital was averaging 180% occupancy for the year. And uh, that's two and three patients in a bed. I remember one day we had 482 patients in our 135-bed hospital. So there were not many alternatives. People came to us. And uh, the density of things that you're trying to deal with is huge. So how are we going to approach this? And what we're going to go back to is look essentially at what is called in ethics the Georgetown mantra, the four key principles that uh, secular people underlie ethics. There's other ways to do ethics than this. But first of all is non-malfeasance, a nice big word that just simply says let's do no harm. Uh, And how do you do that in a a mission facility? You may think it's simple, but it's not. Benevolence, doing good. That's another uh, thing that uh, is going to be hammered into you wherever you are in your medical education uh, stream. You want to do good to people and not, uh, of course, do harm. Uh, Autonomy, giving patients the opportunity to direct the course of their health care versus paternalism, where the doctor, nurse, or whoever is making all the decisions. Uh, And then, of course, justice, treating people fairly. How do you allocate resources when there are not enough resources for everyone? And this becomes an enormous issue as you deal with this not only in um, resources and personnel, but uh, in just basic things like time and um, accessibility. Uh, Who are you accessible to and to what extent? Uh, Because everybody wants a piece of you, and not everybody's going to get a piece of you because there's not enough of you to go around. So because of that, you have an accessibility issue. So let's dig into this, and we're going to give you a lot of illustrations so you can hopefully understand some of the challenges of this. But first of all, let's talk about non-malfeasance, doing no harm. See, the problem is, and this is an enormous issue when you get over there after you finish your training, because it is hammered into your training 
that you never do anything beyond what you're trained to do. I got news for you. That's going to not even last the first day you arrive. Because you'll be doing things you're not trained to do all the time. And how do you work through that issue? Because there's no one else. I remember um, soon after I finished language school and arrived, one of the nurses with me that day, Robin uh, Moore is here today. She remembers it well. It was a Sunday afternoon. I was on call. The other docs were gone. I got called up to the hospital, walked into the emergency room. I'd been there maybe a month or so. And there laying on the operating table was a man who a machete had cut across his maxilla, clear down to the back of his jaw. His face was hanging open. Uh, he was um, uh, choking on the blood that was going down his throat. And uh, it was me. And I'd never done a tra- I'd done one tracheostomy during language training, actually. And uh, so I did a tracheostomy, my second one. We sent somebody over to the lab to give blood, tried to control his airway, got him stabilized, got some IVs in, and I went over to the library and started pulling out the orthopedic books, trying to find a picture of something that looked like this. Because I didn't have the slightest idea how to put his face back up together. And finally, I found uh, in an orthopedic book on traffic accidents what's called a Lefort II fracture, which looks similar. And they talked about getting arch bars and putting those on and lifting up the maxilla and wiring it to the superorbital ridges. And I didn't know what arch bars were. So I got the picture and came over and showed the nurses and said, go downstairs and see if you can find something like this in the storage area. They'd never seen them either. So they go down, rooting around downstairs. It's kind of like a set of braces. And lo and behold, they found a set by the grace of God. And so they brought him up, and we started to get ready to put these on this guy. And about the same time, they brought in his nephew. And a guy, the same guy had taken the machete and cut this arm off. It was just hanging by a strip of skin. This hand, two or three times into the head and into the back, no discernible blood pressure, one operating room, one surgeon, and a medical student. You want to have a great rotation? <laughs> Come on over, because I set the medical student up working on this guy, and I was directing his work while I was trying to figure out how to put arch bars on and how without the proper tools to get a subcutaneous channel up to the superorbital ridge and worked on this guy for, I don't know, six or seven hours and teaching the medical student how to close the amputations and getting this kid resuscitated and finished up on the guy on the main table, went over and looked, and this guy still hadn't woken up, and his blood pressure had come up to normal, and I did another neuro exam on him, and he had a blown pupil. I'd never done neurosurgery, but there was no one else there. And that's the day in the life of a missionary doctor. Probably the most widely trained people you'll ever work with are people who've been overseas for a period of time doing missionary medicine because they've learned they've had to do everything. And it's beyond your training. You're going to work beyond your facility and your experience. Uh, Let's go beyond your facility. As I mentioned, you aren't going to have enough beds often at times. It's not really a good thing. I remember we had an isolation ward. In the isolation ward, we put our TB patients, our measles patients, and we've got our first AIDS patients. We put them up in a little single separate room up there. That's not really a good idea. But there was no, it was better to have them on the ward. You run into these issues of where you're trying not to do harm, but you, because of the situation you're in, are going to be making compromises, trying to take care of the overwhelming amount of pathology and problems you're going to see. You're going to be working on your equipment. 
like we did with that case, doing two operations in the same room at the same time. That's not the best sterile technique. I don't know if they've taught you that yet, <laughs> but it's not, and uh, it becomes a problem. I remember when AIDS came in, in that period of time, and we didn't know a lot about AIDS in those days, and there was no treatment, but we knew it would kill you if you got it. And uh, I remember there was a lot of fear, kind of like Ebola now back in the early 80s. I remember we had a pediatrician come out to do uh, help out for the hospital for a month. And the first day, she walked up to the hospital in a full gown, gloves, face mask, and hat on. And I, because she was afraid of AIDS. And I had to pull her aside and say, excuse me, you can't wear that to the hospital because you're going to scare our staff to death. And we do not have the funds to equip them like you're equipped. We need to do what is reasonable, but we can't do everything you want to do in this situation. That's a hard thing to say. Now, fortunately, AIDS is not nearly as contagious as Ebola, but she thought so. And uh, we had to compromise in our equipment and what we were able to have people do and protect them just because of cost. When I arrived in Kenya, we re-sterilized gloves. Unless we were doing a major case, you wore a pair of gloves that had already been used and re-sterilized. Sometimes you'd put it on two or three times because as you put them on, they'd rip because they'd been re-sterilized. But a pair of gloves costs more than a day in the hospital for patients. So big issues. Depending on where you are, you may go to an area where it's more modern and some of these issues aren't there, but a lot of places it still exist. You're working beyond your supplies. I remember I brought two oxygen concentrators for my residency because they had finally gotten oxygen in one wing of the hospital. We used to hook up two to three kids at a time to the same oxygen concentrator because the other option was a tank of oxygen which had to come 50 miles over terrible roads and there wasn't enough of it to go around. And then sometimes we didn't have enough even with the two concentrators, so you decided which child got it and which child didn't when they all needed it. So you're working beyond your supplies. Um, I remember when we first hepatitis vaccine came out. It was so expensive. We had a lot of hepatitis. And so instead of giving full doses, we did a bunch of research and work where you could get a uh, way to give a quarter of a dose to give more protection to more staff in the hospital. All these things were, are not ideal, but you do them because that's the best you can do. Uh, you don't have enough support staff. I mentioned we had six trained nurses in a 135-bed hospital. They were doing all the OB as well, except for the complicated problems that the physician had to see and often do a C-section on. And they were terribly overworked. Robin was making rounds on the ward every day in pediatrics, as good as any doctor could do. I let her take care of any of my kids. Uh, she, because we had so few people, people had to do things that they normally wouldn't have done here in the States. And these are back in the days before nurse practitioners. Uh, and then enough time. You're never going to have enough time on the mission field in most situations. And giving the illness and the surgery or whatever's needed, who's going to get your attention? Who's going to get it first? Who's not going to get it today? Who are you not going to see because you don't have enough time? Uh, how you, as I mentioned, what we did with our ICU, we got an ICU built and we had uh, oxygen piped in and vacuum and respirators and all sorts of stuff been noted. We got it all set up. We didn't open it for two years because if we had, people on the regular wards would have suffered. We didn't have enough nurses. So doing no harm is a huge, huge issue in a mission facility. So how do you approach it? 
How do you work through that? First of all, here's some questions you need to ask. The first is, what are the other options? What are the other options? Can someone else do this better than I can? There's an obligation to defer to people who have more expertise. That picture up there of that child has an anterior encephalocele. It's a, a neurocord defect. We had a lot of them, about one out of every hundred deliveries was a spina bifida or anencephaly or uh, uh, one of these other problems. I never operated on one of these because they're not an emergency. I'm not a surgeon. I'm a family practice doctor. And so we had surgeons who knew how to do it that did it. I would not touch one of those because I would have been doing harm. There was another alternative. It wasn't an emergency. I remember one day I was doing a C-section on a lady who had been in labor for three days, struck to the labor, came in. The baby was actually still alive paper-thin lower uterine segment. When I made the incision, it just ripped open, went through the bladder, uh, multiple pieces hanging out, blood welling up. By the grace of God, one of my professors from my residency was there, who's an OBGYN, <coughs> took a big gauze, put pressure on it, and said, go get Dave Roberts. And learned from him how to put a bladder that just disintegrated back together and not get the ureters. So you're always... Uh, looking for other options. What are the consequences of doing nothing? Because that's the other alternative. If there's not enough, then what is the consequences of doing nothing versus something? I remember a case came in. I was on call and uh, everybody was gone again. And a young boy came in and said he'd been guarding the cattle and the Maasai had come and and shot him with an arrow. And he just walked in the door talking to me like I'm talking to you. And I did an examination, and over here in his left flank, there was just a little cut about that that wide. I'd been in Africa long enough to know what that meant. Took him to x-ray, and it looked like somebody had put a pointer on his x-ray because there was this pointer from his left flank into uh, right towards his spine. The metal shaft on the end of the area with barbs, arrows with barbs on it, and a metal shaft about that long comes out of the arrow wooden part and just keeps going, and the wood drops off. So I took him in the operating room, opened him up, and to get this arrow out. And lo and behold, it had shish kebab, the descending colon, the kidney, and buried the head into the spinal column. You couldn't pull it back because of these wicked barbs. So I say, go get all the orthopedic instruments, anything that can cut metal. And I got in there and tried with wire cutters and everything else to get that arrowhead off so I could pull it through. And there nothing would cut in this hardened steel that came out of a machete. And so um, I packed him because we had a surgeon who was gone for the day and was coming back that night at 11 o'clock. Surprise, surprise, surprise. He had been all day out in Maasai taking friends to see the animals. And he had been in Africa for, for years. And so when he came in, I went down with Roland Stevens and said, Roland, I got this case. Sorry, man, I know you're bush, but I, I, he's on the table. The spinal's still in effect, and, you know, we got to get this arrow out. And he scratched his head a little bit and said, okay, I'll be up in a few minutes. And uh, about uh, 15 minutes later, he comes up the hill carrying a pair of Sears bolt, cutter, bolt cutters out of his toolkit, which we cleaned up, sterilized, took in there. I packed and pulled things apart. And I wish I'd gotten a picture to send to Sears. We could have uh, had some great advertisements. But And we got the kid did great. Uh, somebody who had more experience than I am and the consequences of doing nothing would have been terrible. Obligation to seek change. You can't be satisfied just to stay like that. You've got to, first of all, learn more yourself. 
And uh, people all the time, you hear all these stories and you go, oh my goodness, how could I ever do that? And how, how do I get prepared for that, Dave? Tell me how I prepare for missionary medicine. What residency, what training do I need? Let me clue you in on something. You can go to residencies for the rest of your life and you will not be prepared for missionary medicine. That's the, that's the challenge and the excitement of it because the best place to learn missionary medicine is on the mission field. Go get your training and whatever you feel like God wants you to be in your specialty. Go over there and then your real training will begin as you face these many, many challenges. And as you get there, learn from those who are there because they've been down the path and have knowledge you'll never get here in training. I remember remember one day I saw this little kid. He was about, uh, I don't know, two or three. Came in, had a hemoglobin of two and a half. I didn't know you could survive with that low hemoglobin. And so I got the history from the mom, you know, so he had fever, thinking about malaria. And, and uh, you know, is he, have you seen him any black stool? Yeah, maybe his stools are a little black. And you know, palpated his stomach, did all this work. I could not figure out what was going on. He got the lab. So finally I went down the hill. Dr. Sturry had been there for years. I said, let me tell you about this case. I don't know what to do with it. It was soon after I arrived. And, and uh, he listened for a minute. And he said, uh, okay, I'll show you what the problem is. Get me a tongue blade and some sprayable anesthetic for the throat. What's that about? Walks up there, lifts up the soft palate. In the back of the soft palate, there's a leech. This kid had almost bled to death from a leech. They actually put in their claws, secreted anticoagulant, and the child had just been oozing blood down the back of his throat for months. And this child almost died. The next time I saw an interesting leech case, it was on the eyeball. You want to show you a picture of that, but maybe not today. But anyway, <laughs> they didn't teach me that in residency. I don't know why not about leeches in the, in the uh, hypopharynx. But it was there. And so having somebody who knows more than you do can be extremely helpful Dr. Sturey, who was my mentor and a wonderful pioneer missionary doctor, I watched him for, for years. Every time visiting staff came out, he turned to them and said, how do you do this? Sometimes I'd almost want to laugh out loud. Some orthopedist would come out and he'd look at him and say, tell me how you take care of osteomyelitis. And I'm thinking, he's seen more osteomyelitis in the last month than this guy's seen in the last five years. But he was always learning from every person that walked in the door because the next time when he needed to know something, they weren't going to be there. And that's part of doing it well. Uh, improve your equipment, and, and you're always going to continue wanting to do that. From simple things like we need electricity 24 hours a day, which was an issue at our hospital, and we ended up building a hydroelectric plant to equipment and supplies and things that could help you take better care of people. And then train others. Train others to do what they can do so you can do only what you can do. Because there's so little time that you have, you've got to always be training others. And, uh, and as you read, as you ask, and then as you train, you begin to build up a bank of people to begin to deal this with these problems of doing no harm. And then you look at the risk-benefit. The risk-benefit. Not only what happens if we don't do anything, but what is the risk if we do do something? You see a picture up there that a woman has a uh, large uh, hepatoma that's ulcerating through the skin. You shouldn't touch that. You, no matter how good you are, you're not going to want to try to operate on that thing because it's, she's way too far gone. The risk is greater than the benefit. And so as you look at these overwhelming problems, you don't want to become a cowboy or a cowgirl. And I'll just go try anything. And I don't know how to do this, but this is the mission field. So why not? Just, no, that's not the way you do it ethically. 
you look at the risk-benefit and set reasonable limits. What's the chance of success, both short and long-term? I remember soon after I arrived, we had a, a child who was born with spina bifida, and the child was paralyzed, uh, which happens. And uh, we, I had helped with the case and went to talk to other doctors. What we need to do, we need to operate on this and close it. And I remember Dr. Sturry looking at me and saying, Dave, no, we're not going to close it. We're just going to um, talk to the family and send the child home. And I thought, my goodness, why, why would you do that? But see, he knew already that even if we operated, what would happen would be that the child, the parents would have a huge hospital bill and the child would go home and die anyway because the parents were incapable in that culture of taking care of a child that was paralyzed and had neurogenic bladder. The child would die anyway, and all they ended up with was a child. That was difficult because here we could have done something. But there, it would have been unwise. The risk was greater than the benefit. Um, and then what can you manage and support is the other issue. You want to stay within reasonable limits and then and only not look at, look at both the long-term and short-term benefits. And then what can you manage and support? Uh, I remember back in the uh, late 80s, we got offered a CT scanner for our hospital. Man, it would have been wonderful to have a CT scanner. We could have done so many great things with it except we couldn't support it. There wasn't people in the country that could maintain it. Now, they have one there now, but at that time, that would have been a stupid decision to try to put something in that would have been a money drain. We'd had the people who had to come out from the states to maintain it. It cost too much to run. And so we said, no, sorry, we don't. we'd love to have a CT canner, but we cannot support it. And so we would do more harm than good by bringing in this technology, which was above our ability to support and that's another issue that you're going to face because people are going to want to be helpful, but you've always got to think, is this wise? Let's look at beneficence. The problem is not doing good. The trouble is when you have competing goods, competing goods, cure versus prevention. I remember when we started community health, and back in the early 80s, that was a new thing. And a lot of people were saying, just shut the hospital and go take care of people in the community and prevent disease. You'll save more lives. Well, you will save more lives until your child has appendicitis, and then what do you do? And so you have these competing goods. How do we take limited resources, and, 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 and it looks like we have to do one or the other, or is there some way we can try to do both? That's a problem. Uh, being a policeman versus being a missionary. I never thought I was going to have to be a policeman when I went to the mission field. When I got in charge of the hospital, you were dealing with fraud, embezzlement, thefts, people stealing things. It was a huge issue. And here you're there to spread the gospel and provide compassionate care. And I remember the, putting the first employee in prison. You ever put anybody in prison? Hope you never have to do that. He had stole the equivalent of 20 years' salary from the finance office. And, and what kind of got the thinking around the hospital is, well, steal what you can. If you get caught, you'll get fired. Go home and enjoy it. And I had prayed and felt very seriously we needed to set an example and uh, it was difficult. I mean, you can imagine being a Caucasian in Africa going to an African court, standing up as the only white person accusing an African of embezzlement. And I had to do that. It took a lot of time. And, and when it was all done, he got 15 months in prison. I thought he should have had a lot longer than that, and it hadn't been worth it. And, and um, a lot of the staff were upset with me because of what I had done. His wife had just had a baby. And... I just agonized over this thing, and God, in his grace, actually 
uh, redeem the whole situation. Fifteen months later, uh, 16 months, I was coming back to the office and saw the man walking down the road, and I picked him up and asked him how he did. I haven't been able to visit him in prison because he was too far away. And, and I'll never forget, I asked him how he was doing, and, and uh, he said he was struggling, he was looking for a job. And, and uh, I said I told him I was so sorry what I'd had to do, but I thought it was the right thing. And he looked at me and said, Dr. Stevens, I want to thank you for putting me in prison. I just about wrecked the car. He said, you know, I told you I was a Christian, but I wasn't. And he said, when I got there, it was so awful. After the first month or two in this African prison, I was ready to commit suicide. He said, but you know, a pastor came and shared the gospel, and I accepted him. You know what I've been doing for the last year? I've been out working with him, going through the prison, sharing Christ. And uh, I said, well, what about this job situation? He said, nobody will hire me. I'm a felon. I said, well, I can't put you back in the business office, but can I find a job for you at Tenwick? Came back, and the job he had was mowing grass. He had training as an accountant, and he was mowing grass. And during the tea break, he'd go up to the hospital and share his faith with patients. God redeemed the situation. But you get into those situations where you've got to be pulled between, yes, I've got to keep financial, uh, make this hospital financially viable at the same time. Uh, I'm a missionary and trying to share the gospel. Huge issues. Paying the staff versus gratis treatment. You want to take care of the poor and help people who can't uh, pay anything, but at the same time, you've still got to pay staff. So how do you find the balance between that, those competing goods? Uh, Taking care of the many not-so-sick versus few of the sickest. That's a huge issue. Somebody comes into the hospital with their motorcycle wrecked and the gas tank blew up and they have third degree burns over 40% of their body. With intensive care and God's grace, they may be salvageable. But then you have to think, how much time do we have with a limited staff to take care of a patient that sick versus the hundreds of other people that need care? Those are the kind of quandaries you're going to be dealing with. Do we put all the effort into this person to the neglect of other people in the hospital? Because it's going to take intensive care from our trained staff to pull these people through these competing goods. Then you have competing lesser of two evils, the better. You've you've been ordering these supplies and equipment, and they're all down at the port, and they're in a container, and you're so excited because you've got medicines coming you need and some new equipment. But the port authority wants a big bribe before they're going to let it out. And all your medicines are sitting down there roasting in the sun. What are you going to do? It's not good to pay bribes. It's not good to have medicines roasting in the sun. You get into these quandaries and difficult situations all the time. Universal precautions versus exorbitant cost. We already talked about that with the nurse or the doctor. Doctor being away from the hospital. You have so few staff. You know if if you leave and go on vacation, people will die. You ever thought about that with vacation? But if you don't go on vacation, you're going to get so burnt out, you're going to leave. So you have these type of things with short staffing and not enough people where you're making very difficult decisions. How do you work through this? Well, there's some principles of utility. We talk about utilitarian ethics being bad, but there's actually a time where utilitarian ethics come to play, and there's some principles I'm going to share with you about how to do that. First of all, when there are no moral absolutes for or against an action. Let me give you an example of that. 
remember the first rabies patient that came into our hospital. There was supposed to be no rabies in Kenya, and we found out there was. It was a young girl. Now, utility would tell me the best thing I could do for her would be go over and give her a lethal injection and kill her. Because she's going to die anyway. So why put her through the misery and the family through the misery and the large bill they're going to get for the time she's in the hospital? But I wouldn't do that because the first principle of applying utility is when there are no more absolutes for or against an action. Professionals have professed that they're not going to kill people. And therefore, that's an absolute. When you know your moral duty, but you're not sure how to fulfill it, uh, you know you're supposed to care for the sick, but now you've got a quandary. When there's a conflict between two moral duties and both cannot be fulfilled, the uh, matatu or the truck turns over, it's full of kids coming back from a school function and rolls down the hill and they bring in kids severely injured. You've got to make decision who's going to get in the operating first, operating room first. That's a utility decision. Uh, you can't operate on all of them. So do you operate on the one that's got a 10% chance to live or do you operate on the one that's got a 40% chance to live first? You think, this one, uh, very little chance this child's going to survive. Maybe we should make this one comfortable and save the one that is salvageable. That's a utility decision based on there's no moral absolute there. You can't take care of all of them. There's only one of you, and you've got to make a very difficult decision. When I give you that example, that example happens. So I'm not making that one up as all these are. When you must prioritize your duties, and that's, when it comes down to it, you've got to make a decision. You've got to prioritize. You can't do all of them. And when there are limited resources. And that's the issue in a mission facility often, that there's not enough of you and there's not enough of everything else. Let's move on to autonomy. I want to make sure to give some time for questions. Autonomy is good. We don't want to be paternalistic. We want people to make decisions about their health care. But it's influenced by your patients, especially in a mission hospital, depending on where you are, situation. What's their worldview and belief system is going to affect their ability to exercise their autonomy. Remember a big Maasai man that came in with his spear blanket, you know, tall, could play for the NBA. And uh, he came in. I've had some pneumonia or some sort of infection or something. I saw him and prescribed an antibody. And out the door he went. And a little while he came back with his spear and sword in hand, stood there, and through the interpreters, I didn't know Masa, I said, Doctor, these, this medicine won't work. I said, oh, yes, this medicine is powerful. And I said, show it to me. Look, those are big red pills. Those are powerful pills. It, no, Doctor, this medicine won't work. I knew what the problem was because in that worldview of the culture, there are evil spirits causing this illness, and unless you cut the skin and let the evil spirit out, you will not get any better. Now, I could have sat there and argued with him forever. It would have made any difference. I didn't have enough time to convince him otherwise. And so instead, I wrote a note to the pharmacy and said, give him an injection of sterile water. You ever had an injection of sterile water? It hurts like the dickens. And I said, okay, we're going to give you a very powerful injection. But you must remember that it will only work if you take those pills with it. He went away delighted, came back after he got his injection, rubbing his arm. Thank you, doctor. Thank you. And it's powerful medicine. (laughs) I'd hurt the dickens out of him. That was because of his worldview. And so I had to not really give him informed consent, did I? 
in that situation because of the intelligence of the people you're working with. Can they grasp the concept of what you're trying to describe to them? Can they understand the options? Do they have an educational level that will help? In our local language, the word for constipation was the same for obstruction of uh, the bowel to all sorts of difficult to explain uh, clearly sometimes what you're trying to do for people to understand just because of the limits of my communication ability or their communication ability, their language to understand it. So it, these are big issues when you're overseas. So, and, and But beneficence, I'm trying to do what's best for them. I'm trying to help them can still be problematic. So what are the principles for dealing with that? There's a number of them that will be helpful to you. First of all, you get the best informed consent you can. It's not going to always be what you want. Uh, it may be a mark at the bottom of an operating room form after you've tried to explain what the operation is about. But if you're doing a major procedure, something that could be life-threatening uh, or cause severe disability, you need to get informed consent. You explain it the best you can in a way you understand. Secondly, you make sure that there's some volunteer accountability because un, um, how should I say it? unmonitored autonomy is dangerous even for missionaries, even those you want to help them, it's dangerous to have unmonitored autonomy as a healthcare professional, as a nurse, physician, or whatever. So you want to set up systems for internal review. How are we doing? How can we do better? Uh, I remember we put, you know, counted our C-section rate, and looked at all these statistics every year to see how we were doing. Uh, we measured our results. We sit down and, and discuss difficult cases whenever we could. How could we have done this better? We compared ourselves to other institutions. We did an annual report each year, and it was a hassle. And I had to do it as the medical superintendent, bring all this data together and write a report, distribute it to other hospitals. But as they did that and we did that, it enabled us to say, whoa, wow, what's going on here? Why are we doing better? Why are we doing worse than another institution similar to ours? And uh, are we making the best decisions and uh, guarding uh, patients' autonomy? And then external review, having somebody else come in and look at your hospital and uh, your clinic and give you an outside opinion. Somebody knowledgeable, Center for Medical Missions at CMDA has done this, where they'll go in and do a hospital audit and help them understand uh, where they need to improve. Uh, maybe a community feedback or survey, how your patients seeing you, those type of things can be helpful uh, to avoid the problems of uh, uh, too much autonomy. Let's talk about justice, and we'll have some time for questions. Microallocation is a huge issue because, as I've already mentioned, you have so little of what you need. There's many factors impacting that. Uh, I say managed care really started mission hospitals. Managed care is when you have limited resources and uh, unlimited needs. That's probably the best definition of managed care in a mission facility. And so you're dealing with a lot of microallocation issues. When, before we got our hydroelectric plant, we had a small little 5,000-watt generator up the hospital that could run the operating room light and run one isolate at night. And we had a high premature birth rate, maybe one in 26, 27 deliveries was a set of twins. And I can remember the difficult decisions deciding We've got three babies already in that isolate. You can't get any more. They're all premature. They all need it. Now we've got another baby that's just been born. So do we take the one out that's doing the best, or do we take the one out that's doing the worst, realizing it's probably going to die? Those type of decisions of being how do you be just in those situations is a huge, huge issue. 
I remember who fertility workup. I remember the first couple that came in and asked me, said, you know, very quietly, Dr. Stevens, we're having trouble having children. And my thought was, listen, Kenya's got the highest population growth rate in the world. Good. I'm glad you're infertile. No, I mean, <laughs> it was kind of in the back of my mind until somebody pulled me aside and said, wait a minute, you don't understand the culture. If this wife doesn't get pregnant in two years, her husband will send her home, demand the diary back, and her life is over and she'll probably commit suicide. Infertility was a big issue. And it changed how I approached that and how I was fair and just with my time, realizing this was a life-threatening illness for this woman and uh, having to deal with that. Accessibility. The Mercedes draws up out front and the politician gets out of it. And he wants us to walk into the hospital and be seen first. You're going to stand up and say, no, 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 no. I came to take care of these poor people and you can just go to the back of the line. I'll tell you how long that will last, just about the time it takes you to get to the airport. Because they may throw you out of the country. The justice thing is a huge issue because things aren't fair overseas. And it's not like it is here. Is it, it, it can be the powerful and the powerless. In fact, everybody in line is going to step aside to get the politician in first because they believe he should be first too. They aren't going to be sitting there going, wait a minute, why are they letting him in? Riches versus the poor. The business person says, hey, listen, doctor, if we'll give you some money and let you open a private clinic. We would like not to have to wait in line. We'll pay more, and we'd like a private room at the hospital. What do you do about that? Let's talk about justice. First, being fair and impartial as the situation allows. Fair and impartial as the situation allows. Common sense rules to serve persons whose conditions or requires immediate attention, and if this attention is not given, will progress to a more serious state. Then you have to apply utilitarian ethics. In other words, you're never going to let somebody suffer significant harm because you've moved somebody in the line. But at the same time, you've got to realize that you're working in a culture where you may have to adapt some things to what's going on. And uh, it can be an issue that you have to deal with. You do the best you can for the most people with the resources that you have. Politician may get first in line. We made a decision we would open a private clinic for those people who wanted to pay more. But they wouldn't get any higher quality care than everyone else in the hospital was getting. And if somebody was sick, they had to wait. If they were so sick, they needed to be seen first. But in the midst of routine care, if we could give them easier access and they'd pay more and help support the hospital so we could help more people, we would do it. That was our solution with the business people. And we put in some private rooms and we charged them a lot of money for it and it helped the hospital. And they were happy, we were happy, and everybody still got the care they deserved. That's the key thing. Uh, You also have to realize you can only do so much for so many people. I remember in residency I went out and took one of my friends, and he got the pediatric ward, the hardest place to work in the hospital. And he struggled because kids were dying every day. And I remember Mike came down the hill at the end of the day one day and was just in tears. I said, Mike, what's going on? He's a great doc, wonderful Christian guy. He said, you know, this woman came after me for her son. I went and saw the son two or three times, and I'd done everything I could. And, 
And I just had to see other patients, and then she just came to me before I left and said the child had died. And he just felt so bad. Because here you don't lose kids unless it's just an overwhelming disease, and there you lose them all the time. And I remember saying this to Mike. Mike, you can't save everyone. You have to realize that you do the best you can for the most people. But if you burn yourself out and can't handle this, then how many people are going to suffer? There's time when you have to go home. And disaster triage, too. We close with this. Disaster triage principles are this, that in disasters and relief situations and often in mission hospitals, you, the people with the least injuries are set aside to wait. The people with the worst injuries are set aside to die, and you take care of the ones in the middle. And you give compassionate uh, pain relief and that type of things. At those. And sometimes you're going to be in situations where that's the case. And that's difficult to do, but that's what you do in war and relief and sometimes in missions. Virtue ethics, and I'll close with this. Virtue ethics means the quality of being morally good and righteous. It's a different type of ethics where the, the belief is that if you are a good person, a morally good peer person, then you're going to make the right decisions. And by the grace of God, he's going to help you in those situations where you're having difficulty as you pray and ask for direction, get counsel from others to make decisions for the best. We're going to leave out the other recommendations. Questions, comments? Yes. Well, I, I think one is when you're, you know, we've learned I did medical relief for a number of years and you're dealing with very difficult situations. I think the mental health issue of it is you've, get, you've got to decompress at times. When we were doing, when I was in Somalia, every month we got people out for a week. You could not handle it in Somalia for more than a month. Uh, people dying and insecurity. We had 10 guys with machine guns guarding us. You left, lived in this hyper-intense state. And that's true in missions to some extent, to a lesser degree, but you've got to take some breaks or you will go nuts. And that's difficult because the needs are so great, but you have to protect your own mental health. Secondly, you have to walk very close to the Lord. Third, you need a good mentor, somebody who's been there is wise and can help you work through the decision. Fourth, you need to debrief with other people after these difficult things happen and crisis. And how could we have done this better? Uh, you know, did I approach this right? Should we have made a difficult decision? And then bathe the whole thing in prayer. Lord, you know, we, we prayed before every case. We prayed. The thing I miss most about being on the mission field is I don't have to exercise my faith as hard. Because that's a healthy thing, just like exercise is healthy. And here, you know, if my car breaks down today, I'll just call AAA, pull out my cell phone, somebody will take care of it. Remember, in Africa, if my, if my car went out, when I went out to Maasai, I prayed to God somebody came by in the next two days. You live on a different level. And that's good. It's the level we all should live on. So I don't want you to get the approach that because you're living there and working there, that this is actually a good thing for you. See, all of us in medicine are very, um, very knowledgeable. We know how to work hard. When the going gets tough, you just work harder. That's what we've all been taught. And you're going to get to a place where that's not possible. You have to depend on God, not on yourself. That is a good thing. And you see his hand working again and again and again in you and through you. And, um, you know, I, I remember when I was your, some younger y'all's age, you'd meet older missionaries, and they almost just had this, I don't know what it was, 
this holy glow about them. Yeah, they, they, they weren't saints. You go to mission field, you find that out real quick. You live with them. But they had been through the difficult situations and had learned to depend on God in a deeper, real way than I ever had. And that's a healthy way to live. Other questions, comments? A great one. Oh, yeah. Thanks. I think it's wonderful. I would go. The question was, what do you think about sending uh, healthcare professionals into Ebola situations? The Bible says very clearly, if you love your neighbor and lay down your life for them. There's been a tradition in healthcare, uh, in Christian healthcare, for years. You go back to 400 AD, and there was a huge epidemic in the Mediterranean. Over six million people died. They think it was from smallpox. And the bishop of the Alexander Church wrote about how everybody fled to the hills except the Christians who took the illness upon themselves and died with the people that they were caring for. Um, God said, lay down your life for your brothers and sisters. Now, I'm not what, saying to go you know, infect yourself with Ebola, but go take the risk because you're going in God's name. And you'll see ton- uh, tonight when Kent and Amber speak uh, you know, that God has taken that and used it to spread his gospel and literally around the world because of their willingness to put their lives at risk for others. Our greatest witness comes when we're willing to live like Jesus. Remember when he touched the leper? Everybody thought he was going to die of leprosy. And uh, I don't mean living recklessly, but I mean going where the gospel can only take you. And we should be in the forefront of that. If Doctors Without Borders is willing to do it, what does that say about us if we're not? One more question. We've got a minute and a half. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think there's a lot of fear, and unfortunately, it is um, it has infected some of us. I was we do new missionary orientation, medical missionary orientation uh, for Samaritan's Purse and uh, other new medical missionaries. Trained 60 new medical missionaries this year. I was dealing with the girl, people at Samaritan's Purse, and they, as usually, the young couples were concerned about their kids and taking them overseas and stuff. One of the girls was going to Elwa. And I was thinking about what to say at the end, and, and I said this to them. I said, if you die before you go, you don't have to worry about dying when you get there. And that's true. I remember when I went into Somalia and Sudan, Rwanda and those places, and I already made the decision, if God, you want to take my life, I'm willing. I, would, I discussed it with my wife. My will was up to date. It was dangerous what I was doing. I wasn't doing it on a lark. I wasn't seeking adventure. I was doing it because God had called me to do it. And I went. And that's where we should be. God bless you. I will not be studying around for questions because i got to speak again in 10 minutes next door. But after that session, if you want to ask questions personally, I'll be available. God bless.